for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with Your Financial Editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on AM 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And of course, as a podcast at iTunes, I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us today. I hope your weekend's going well. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. And um, uh, really good program planned for you today. Some interesting top stories that we're going to uh, drill down and uh, talk more about. Um, kind of above and beyond what I do with uh, Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick on the uh, business updates live uh, weekday mornings. So we'll be doing that. We've got some economic data, including that terrible and very suspicious, in my mind, jobs report that came out yesterday. So we'll be taking a look at that as well. And then my guest joining me in just a little bit, Mr. Mark Mills. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's also a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's uh, School of Engineering and Applied Science. Have you ever, you know, we're talking and hearing about all of these um, EVs, electric vehicles, and the forced production of these electric vehicles. If you listen to the show last week, we talked about how uh, General Motors was going to invest $1 billion in a plant in Mexico for electrical vehicles. Um, have you ever thought about what it takes to make a battery for a car? The, uh, the natural resources and the material that has to be harvested from the earth. Uh, it really struck my interest uh, more than normal uh, recently, and I thought that we'd get into that so that we could be educated and understand uh, this um, new energy deal that they're talking about versus uh, where we were uh, until recently with energy independence and what it all means. But in particular, again, what do we have to do to Mother Earth to uh, make these batteries? So we're going to talk about that. And uh, that's uh, coming up in just a little bit with Mr. Mills. So stay tuned for that. Pretty big deal this week, even though there was a lot of other stuff going on that was really hitting the radar. It was interesting to see that Verizon Communications, they're getting out of their media businesses that include um, brands like Yahoo and AOL. They're going to sell those two brands for about $5 billion. And it's really just ending a a very expensive and unsuccessful run in the media and advertising world. So despite spending more than a decade and billions and billions of dollars trying to build this uh, horse stable, if you will, of Internet brands, the uh, company uh, Verizon Communications, you know, it didn't work. They struggled with that. And they're basically throwing in the towel. They're going to sell those two brands uh, that I mentioned, Yahoo and AOL, for about $5 billion to a private equity firm known as Apollo Global. Um, and then, you know, this really concludes, I think, pretty much the steady drip of deals which saw Verizon. They were selling their blogging platform in 2019. Their platform was known as Tumblr. They got rid of that. They uh, offloaded uh, HuffPost, that news website, which I say – tongue-in-cheek as far as news. But uh, so interesting that, uh, like I said, they're throwing in the towels, towel there and pretty much getting out of that uh, business because they 
didn't do it very well, obviously. You know, I thought it was really interesting, too, this week. I don't know if, if you were aware of it or not, but the president and CEO of the American Trucking Associations, his name is Chris Spear, he said that over the next decade, more than one million truckers will have to join the industry just to maintain current economic demand, just current demand. So Mr. Spears, who is the head of the nation's leading organization representing the interest of the trucking industry, acknowledged that there is a trucker shortage and stressed that aggressive steps are needed to address the problem. Um, For example, drivers needed to deliver fuel to gas stations are in short supply. That could cause a fuel shortage, which could lead to more pain at the pump this summer. And it could also lead to increased prices for other essential items. So uh, I thought that was very interesting and scary. You know, it really uh, uh, alerts you as to what's going on out there. And also, according to the National Tank Truck Carriers Trade Group, that's a separate one, um, up to 25% of trucks are parked around the country because there are not enough qualified truck drivers so that number's up 15% from the beginning of last summer. So really interesting developments there um, it, when you talk about how we get our, our um, whatever it is we need, really. You know the old saying that if you have it, a trucker brought it to you or a railroad brought it to you or a, uh, well, no matter what, you know, the trucker's going to bring it. Uh, the railways can only go so far. The sea container ships can only go so far, i.e. into port. So um, that's something that uh, that really is going to be interesting to watch. Are people going to say, I'm going to learn to become a over-the-road trucker and, uh, and participate in this big demand that's out there? Um, you know, the other thing this week that I saw, uh, and we talked about this last week on, on the program, the one of the latest, or the latest, I guess, uh, volley by the current administration to spend taxpayer money, um, and very poorly, I, I think, uh, you would agree if you look into what the money's actually being spent on. But they're naming them really nice names, and people think that that's warm and fuzzy and that it, it all makes sense, which it makes almost no sense, actually. Uh, Biden's newest spending proposal actually would sig- cost significantly more than what the White House projected. So we talked about this last week. It's the American Families Plan. And uh, the uh, the Biden administration said that the American Families Plan is only going to cost $1.8 trillion. Well, actually, it's going to cost $2.5 trillion, roughly $700 billion more than Biden estimated and that's according to new findings from the Penn Wharton Budget Model, which is a nonpartisan group at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. So $700 billion. This is on top of all the other wasteful spending. Um, the disparity arises from, and again, this is what I disagreed with with the guest last week, which he was younger, so I get it, you know. Younger, you have a liberal bleeding heart, and then when you get older and smarter, you realize um, that, you know, if you buy into that stuff, you don't have a head or a brain. Um, So a lot of this is uh, disparity, as I mentioned, 
calls for this universal pre-kindergarten stuff, um, preschool stuff. So the guest last week said, oh, it's great to invest in kids. It's not the government's job to invest in kids. They can't even open up a school. They can't even get the unions to do that. So what are they going to do at younger ages besides indoctrination and twist these kids' minds, heaven knows in which direction? But, yeah, that's where that in this, you know, the whole free community college thing, uh, among very uh, various other costs, are going to add up to seven hundred billion dollars. And at the same time, the tax or the proposals tax increases would raise one point three trillion over the same period. So two point five trillion and you only get one point three trillion um, and, and even the $1.3 trillion is less than what the government expects. And then you have to figure, okay, how is this going to shrink our GDP or our gross domestic product? It's going to. Their estimate, again, at the Wharton School of Business is about a third of a percent. Um, this is not, you know, it's not going to be good. And, again, I just want to remind you, if you didn't listen last week, it was interesting because the guest from uh, the Center for a Responsible Federal Budget said, yeah, it's great. We're going to invest all this money in kids. And then he said later in the interview, uh, it's projected 30 years from now, the average uh, income is going to be $7,000 less. Is that a good investment? None of this stuff is hardly. Maybe 2 3 4% in each of these massive overspending bills makes sense. The rest of it is worthless, and uh, it really, you know, again— um, shouldn't be accepted. You, you know, you really should push back on this stuff because it's not what's good for the country. Um, and my whole thing is, and I asked this question, and it, it's almost, you, you probably can't answer it, but of these billions and trillions of dollars going out and going to targeted um, areas that really have nothing to do with what the, like healthcare with COVID, you know, what was that, less than 9%. Um, and then infrastructure, uh, which we'll get into in a little while, you know, less than whatever, 4% it is, they're saying. But where this money's going, just like this money they're going to send to Central America, who's going to get that money? It's the corrupt politicians, the corrupt organizations. But you know what? Even that money that goes out of the country, how much of that do you think? Now, you, obviously, it's going to happen in this country. We see it uh, every year, year after year. Um, but how much of that do you think goes back into political campaigns to support the people that just paid them out? So, I mean, I, I just think it's it's um, it's almost sickening. Like when you really think about what these uh, politicians and appointed people, bureaucrats, too, are doing to the country. Cannibalizing, you know, eating it from the inside out really is what we see here because of the things that they're doing. And I had this epiphany. I'll share it with you. The only person I've shared this with is my wife. Um, I had this epiphany a couple weeks ago. I came to realize that if liberals and progressives thought that it would enrich them more financially or create more power for them to have over people, they would try to change the Ten Commandments if they thought that would help them. It just, because nothing's off the table with these people. It's amazing the lengths they're going to 
And, you know, if they don't like something, like infrastructure, what it really means, they change the definition. So it's scary. But anyway, that's mine. That's original. And you're welcome to use it if you want. But I really believe that if they thought it would enrich them and give them more power, they would try to change the Ten Commandments or amend it or whatever you want to do with it. But, you know, we're talking about all this money. A record 34% of all household income in the United States now comes from the government. Personal current transfer payments, which are essentially government-sourced income, such as unemployment benefits, welfare checks, etc. In March, that number exploded to a mind-blowing $8.1 trillion annualized. That was more than double from where it was one month before. 34% of all household income in the U.S. doesn't come from the private sector. Now it comes from the government. That's on purpose also. And uh, there's a a guy in the financial world. His name is Jeffrey Gunlock. Uh, He's a big bonds uh, fixed income guy, kind of they kind of call him the bond king, if you will. But I saw this week that he actually warned that America's unfunded liabilities, what we're on the hook for, are one hundred sixty three trillion dollars. So basically, you know, he's letting us know that that and these um, liabilities, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, budget deficit, et cetera. So that's what that is, $163 trillion. And he also, I have to give him credit, um, and I'm in total agreement. I've been saying this for a while. Uh, he really called the Fed's bluff late last month uh, because he was telling investors that uh, he suspected the central bank was merely guessing the Federal Reserve about the impact of inflation being transitory, which that word transitory that they're trying to use is used to make you feel stupid. Uh, And, you know, they hope you don't really understand or try to figure out what they're doing because they don't know what they're doing, obviously, because if things are as good as they say, uh, the Fed wouldn't be spending $120 billion every month and keeping interest rates at zero. They just wouldn't be doing it. It would make no sense whatsoever but that's what they're doing all right quick break when we come back um some economic data a little bit of fed stuff for you and then uh we'll be talking right after that with my guest this morning mr mark mills senior fellow at the manhattan institute and we're going to be talking about this reality check if you will what has to be mined what minerals do we have to use how much earth do we have to harvest to create one battery for one car. So that's coming up. Uh, the um, Getting ready to take down the uh, free uh, complimentary uh, takeaway on the website. It's the value of an objective opinion. Getting ready to replace that. I thought we already would have, but we haven't yet, uh, with some stuff on taxes. So uh, if you go to murrayfinancialgroup.com, you'll be able to, uh, it's right on the homepage. You just click the button. Um, it's a complimentary download email for you. Uh, The value of an objective opinion, the importance of timing, the importance of income planning, the value of an independent opinion, uh, et cetera. All that's there for you. So uh, help yourself. I hope you enjoy it and that it's beneficial because that's why we do it. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and also as a podcast on uh, iTunes. Just go to iTunes and look up your financial editor and you can hear um, this program, the last program. It's just a full library uh, for you to to check out. And I mentioned right before the break, uh, getting ready to take it down the complimentary download for you at murrayfinancialgroup.com, the value of an objective opinion. Um, And uh, we look at some of the economic data this week. It's going to lead up to, I'll end um, economic data-wise, with uh, the pathetic jobs report, which is suspect in my mind. But we'll start at the beginning of the week where we saw that uh, U.S. manufacturing actually uh, slowed in April, that uh, Institute for Supply Management, the ISM, said that its index of national factory activity fell to a reading of 60.7 last month, uh, down from 64.7. So uh, that was an unexpected drop. Economists uh, surveyed and polled by Reuters had forecast the index edging up to 65 in April And uh, that was a pretty big miss for those guys. And then also we saw the U.S. service sector uh, grow at a slower pace in the month of April. So the Institute for Supply Management non-manufacturing activity, that index fell to a reading of 62.7, just down one point from uh, the previous month uh, where it was 63.7. But again, Reuters was thinking it was going to be much stronger there. Excuse me, the economist polled by Reuters thought it was going to be much stronger. Um, So something that we really want to keep an eye on because of uh, the importance of those two, both the service industry, which accounts for over two-thirds of economic activity, and then that manufacturing, which up until recently was really gaining uh, some some ground and getting back, kind of getting its feet back under it or and its legs back under it, if you will, where, you know, we, we saw a, somewhat of a, a renaissance in manufacturing, but that's uh, starting to fade away. And as I mentioned, you know, we're starting to see money go overseas to plants um, outside of the United States, not here in the U.S. Also, the U.S. trade deficit surged to a record $74.4 billion in March. Um, It's simply because of opening the economy and the pent-up demand and the appetite by the consumer wanting to get out there, live their life, spend their money. Uh, So a whole lot more was being purchased coming into the country than what we were shipping out of the country because you just don't have that type of demand in most areas uh, around the world. So then we get into the job stuff of this week. It was a little loaded up. You know, the uh, ADP report was uh, it it was on about par of what was expected. The Challenger uh, job cut report, same thing, Um, you know, looking pretty good. Saw some improvement. Initial jobless claims on Thursday. Of course, we get those every Thursday morning at 830. Um, we still saw that 498,000 people filed for first-time claims. 498,000. So um, that was down from a week earlier, but it's still double, more than double, the typical pre-virus level. So there's a ton of work that's still to be done. Um, and it doesn't look like it is being done because what we saw yesterday from the, uh, labor department was that 
hiring in April, according to the big jobs report for the month, it just crashed and burned. So these economists were expecting, on average, just under a million. I think it was 978,000 was the consensus. Obviously, you had some lower, some a lot higher. 266,000 jobs were added. 266,000 new jobs added in April. That was below the lowest estimate that was even out there. Just a pathetic number. And the unemployment rate rose to 6.1%. So, it, you know, it was a horrendous jobs report. Everybody, basically, as far as economists, were wrong about this. No one saw that type of a number coming. Now, you have to wonder. I mean, the ADP report was more normal. The Challenger job cut report was more normal and expected, came in as expected. The initial jobless claims came in as expected. What's up with this? What's going on at the Labor Department? Is this a bait and switch? Is this because the current administration is out on the road trying to sell all of these spending programs and convince you convince, convince you that they're definitely necessary? Yeah, the economy's doing good. They'll say that. But, hey, no, we got to spend trillions of dollars and rack up all this debt. And, by the way, it doesn't even have anything to do, Harley, with infrastructure or whatever. You think that they'll use this to say, here's proof that we need more money spent? I do. I do. And if this isn't a massive revision in a month from now, I'll be shocked. Totally shocked. But while they're out trying to sell this, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Because Biden's, his last administration he was in, their Labor Department was known for this kind of stuff. Weekly revisions from initial claims so they could make things look better than what they really were. Like they were doing a great job. Here, you have to wonder, they're pulling the reins in so that it doesn't look too good because they have to get this spending ram through. And then, of course, if you argue against that spending, then you don't care about the jobs market. You don't care about Americans working. No, I do care about Americans working. That's why I don't want you to pay them to sit home. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with this. Um, but that's, that's what I think is going on because this is an epic failure from every economist out there that was trying to put their finger in the wind to see which way it was blowing. Epic failure. So we'll see how it all plays out, but I think that would easily, you can easily make an argument for that. Um, You know, they're out reading teleprompters and note cards about, you know, why they have to do these things, trying to sell it, which I get it. You know, they're politicians and bureaucrats, but um, this definitely can help backfill that sales uh, pitch for sure. So we saw this week um, as far as uh, like in the Fed Treasury area, a couple interesting things. One, uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said that the economy is doing better, but is not out of the woods yet. That's really creative. Well, I've never heard that statement before. Um, he was basically saying that they're going to keep uh, things um, in place. They're worried about 
the, the study they're doing documenting the disproportionate blow suffered by the less educated and working parents during the virus turndown. Guess what? You should have kept schools open. There was no proof that that was going to be a problem. And if a person had an existing uh, issue, a, a teacher or an aide or a principal, don't you think we would have given them, you know, bring in your doctor's note. Okay, you have emphysema or you have whatever. Okay, I get it. You stay home. We'll pay you. You stay home. You know, we'll get somebody to take your place. We're not going to punish you for having, you know, some type of chronic illness. But instead, they they shut, you know, they threw out the baby with the bathwater. So he should have, and he knows this, they should have kept schools open. And, um, you know, when you look at what was going on before the virus, record unemployment, didn't matter if you were black, white, Hispanic, Asian, man, woman, if you were 16 or over 60, uh, if you dropped out of high school, or maybe you got a, you know, PhD or one the Nobel Prize or whatever. It didn't matter. You were doing better. Some historically the best ever. Others the best in 50 years. And the the CDC and everybody else just miscalled all this stuff. And, um, again, I mentioned, you know, the one economist that does a very good job that I follow said this was the worst self-inflicted economic data or, excuse me, damage. In the history of the world, not the history of the country, history of the world. We did this to ourselves. Well, people did it to us um, if you bought into that stuff. And lastly, Janet Yellen, she kind of gut punched uh, Jerome Powell because he took her job uh, at the Fed last time, saying that uh, maybe interest rates do need to go up. So, um, you know, I thought that was a low blow, but... um, You know, that's fine. They could have a cage match and it wouldn't bother me. Okay, so a quick break and then we get to our subject with Mr. Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute. What does it take? What do we have to harvest from Mother Earth to make these batteries that the government's forcing you uh, into as far as car batteries, etc.? We're going to talk about that. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. The complimentary download is the value of an objective opinion. And we'll be back in a minute. Outside of this one church town, there's a gold dirt road to a whole lot of nothing. Got a deed to the land, but it ain't my ground. This is God's country. Pray for rain and thank Him when it's falling, cause it brings the grain and the little bit of money. We put it back in the plate, I guess. That's why they call it God's country. It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and also as a podcast at iTunes. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us uh, today. Appreciate it. Hope your weekend's going well. Um, 
And uh, again, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. So great to have you. Um, if you've been with us for a while, thank you. And even for those that go all the way back to 1997 when um, I launched the program, thank you so much for making the program successful and the awards that we've been recognized uh, and received. That's all because of you. Um, and also, a big part of it is the folks that I have the pleasure of speaking with and that uh, come on the program. And today's an excellent uh, example of that. My guest, Mr. Mark Mills, he is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. Um, you've probably seen his writings in Forbes or the Wall Street Journal or USA Today. Um, he's authored a couple books and uh, actually also served in the White House Science Office under the great President Ronald Reagan. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Of course, if we talk about Reagan, you're really, you're really dating me. It's like, it's like having worked for, uh, oh, I don't know, Warren G. Harding or something. I don't know. Well, I know you were only 11 when you did it, but I exactly. do want to I reference I tell it. people. I was still in diapers. <laughs> okay. That's the tragedy. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Um, one of the things I was sharing at the top of the program with the listeners is um, it kind of hit me recently really hard. I mean, I'd thought about it a little bit, but um, with this big push into alternative energies or green energies, I was wondering what's the cost of that uh, environmentally? In other words, how does Mother Earth come into play? And I was fortunate enough to uh, come across your piece on the Manhattan Institute site uh, that really helped summarize it. And I thought if I was curious about it, perhaps other people are too. So I wanted to get your expertise and your input there. Um, can you kind of give us uh, just an overview of, of what this green energy push is, is going to be all about? Well, you know, you put, your, you put your finger on asking the right question, and it's true uh, that everything, and this is a truism when I state it, and it's sort of obvious what's stated, no, nothing exists. There's no, no product and no service in society of any kind that doesn't begin with having to dig something out of the earth. And every every service uses products that are manufactured. All energy machines, whether they're wind turbines or gas turbines, have to be built from minerals extracted from the earth. So it's a uh, the, the environmental footprint of humanity for everything that we do is can be traced in a straight line back to mines somewhere or farms. But uh, typically, we're not talking about food. We're talking about mining something. So I wrote a paper last year based on some early experience in my in my earlier career, pre-Reagan, I actually worked for a Canadian uranium gold and silver mining company and have been to, to mines many places. And uh, you know, I know a little bit about mining and I've studied a lot more about mines. So this is, this is the question you'd ask is, how much stuff do we have to dig out of the earth to deliver a mile of driving? I mean, it's not just if it's a you know gasoline-powered car, we know it means you're drilling things and refining oil. If it's a battery-powered car, Never mind how you make the electricity. Let's just cha trace the supply chain for making the battery. So a single fact, this all begins with, because electric cars are sort of the uh, poster child for the uh, new energy future, so to speak. A typical electric car battery weighs 1,000 pounds. Most people don't know that, but it's a 1,000-pound battery pack. And uh, give or take a few pounds, but it's 1,000 pounds. The gasoline tank in your car, when it's full of gasoline, weighs about 140 pounds, just for calibration. 
So a thousand pound battery pack that takes somewhere on earth to make that one battery pack, you have to dig up and move and process 500,000 pounds of the earth. So to restate that, a thousand pound battery pack requires digging up and processing and moving somewhere on earth 500,000 pounds of the earth. So you could trace this to you know millions of cars. It's a lot of stuff. Uh, or, or put in sort of macro terms, the overall footprint in terms of tons of stuff that have to be dug up and processed uh, going the so-called green path is tenfold higher than the oil, gas, coal path that we're now that we now dominate the uh, supply of the world's energy. Well, and I mean, that is just, it'll knock you off your stool when you think about that and try to visualize it in your mind's eye, uh, 500,000 pounds of material for just one 1,000-pound car battery. Right. Um, how, why is, I mean, and again, I don't hear about this anywhere. I know you're uh, very versed on it, and it's a it's an area of expertise for you and for your colleagues and I did see, and by the way, folks, if you want to read this exact same report, I encourage you to do so. Uh, go to manhattan-institute.org. And uh, uh, Mr. Mark Mills, our guest this morning, he's a senior fellow there, but they have experts that uh, were a little tab, and you can click that. And you can not only see uh, this piece titled Mines, Minerals, and Green Energy, a Reality Check, but also uh, his interviews with various uh, other experts and his other uh, commentary and reporting. But, um, Mark, I, I just, again, I, I don't see this. I don't hear about this. I don't read about this. Um, you know, why is this such a uh, covered-up almost uh, issue with what we're going to have to do to the earth. They're talking about saving the earth and, you know, pull, pulling heartstrings. But really, what type of damage are we going to do if everybody's going to have to have an electric car? Well, it's, it's, that's the right question to ask. And uh, it, I, I don't know, you know I'm not uh, a conspiracy theorist. I don't think it's really covered up. I don't, uh, you know, my report, I cite all, all manner. This is not me making up facts. I, I, I wrote that paper. It's a summary of other research done by the UN and by the OECD, you know, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and by the International Energy Agency and by uh, environmental organizations in Europe uh, and in Australia. So there's been a lot of scholarship on this, and that's what I summarize in my paper. The, you know, the, the fact that you have to, uh, you know, mine lithium for lithium batteries is pretty obvious, right? And even the Washington Post and New York Times have written about the environmental cost of that. In fact, New York Times yesterday had a huge feature piece on the uh, environmental challenges, you know, finally, right, about the massive quantities of lithium that will have to be mined. So the, the, the awakening is happening mainly because there's a significant increase, not only in the quantity of, you know, electric cars and wind farms and, you know, uh, uh, solar arrays being built, but there's this self-evidently massive uh, push to make this, you know, so-called transition from burning oil and gas to to using wind and solar and batteries, and as you do that, you begin to ask questions. If you're a, if you're a supplier or if you're a policymaker, some people are beginning to ask. Finally, where does this stuff come from? Of course, this is the other part of the story, is that the United States, as most of your listeners probably know, um, is functionally self-sufficient in energy materials, which are oil, gas, and coal. We we net net export natural gas, and we 
are almost the net exporter of oil and its products, but we're, we don't import very much on a grand basis anymore. And, uh, you know, we have exchanges, just like we do with food, but we're, we're, we were on track to becoming a net exporter of oil, too. We'll see how that works out with the current administration, but that's where the world was going. But when it comes to the energy minerals, the cobalt, the manganese, nickel, copper, uh, lithium, uh, all the minerals that are needed, and the, the you know the so-called rare earths, some of you have heard about. We're not a uh, we're not a net exporter or a net producer. We're actually a net importer. In fact, we depend on imports for a hundred percent of about uh, a dozen plus key minerals. Hundred percent are imported, and the the dominant uh, player in the world on the mineral production and critical mineral sort of called so-called critical energy minerals refining, uh, you will not be surprised to learn, is China. No, China no. utterly dominates this, this market. Uh, there are other players in mining. The, mine, the mines are all over the world, uh, not, not many of them in the United States anymore. They're in, in some friendly places, like Canada, my homeland, and Australia. And there are a lot of places that are not so friendly or so well policed, from you know, Chile and Bolivia to, uh, to the si- si- Siberia and Russia, China, of course, Africa. And um, the level of demand increase that the green plans require constitutes the biggest increase in demand for mined minerals the world has ever seen. And by that, I mean increases in demands for these critical minerals that range from a few hundred percent, which seem like a lot, to a few thousand percent increase in demand. But these, what the plans and projections for electric cars and, and, and uh, solar arrays will require. Um, if I should close, close that disquisition by observing something that the International Energy Agency has pointed out very recently. There are no plans and no funds in the world today to meet that demand. The mining industry has not planning to, applied for, or building anything near the capacity to meet that demand. Oh, gosh. That, all that's just so uh, just scary. I mean, again, you know, if we have to depend on uh, certain countries that uh, we don't have a great relationship with. Uh, well, I've got to squeeze a quick commercial break in here, folks, and then we'll ask uh, uh, Mr. Mark Mills his opinion when we close things out uh, the last few minutes of the program on the other side um, about th- does the supply chain. Again, what are we going to do if we find ourselves uh, needing something from a, uh, uh, you know, a non-friend or at least, uh, you know, a non-partner business-wise? So stay tuned for that. Third shot, damn, I'm in trouble. I'm a newly single man, seeing double. Fake a smile for all my friends, then go home. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast at iTunes. And uh, we're uh, wrapping up our conversation with my guest this morning, Mr. Mark Mills. He is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. And he's scaring the heck out of me. Uh, which is exactly what I wanted because he's educating me, and I think you too, on what the whole push is now 
uh, with electric vehicles and the batteries that are necessary to uh, for those vehicles to function and how much of Mother Earth are we going to need? And, you know, uh, Mark, you were explaining that. Uh, but now, if you will, how um, because we were basically energy independent and we don't know where that's going to go now for sure. It doesn't look too good. Um, what happens if we have uh, a reliance on other countries and we have uh, disruptions in the supply chain? Well, I mean, the question answers itself. <laughs> think about it. The, so the, uh, I think that the thing that a lot of people haven't focused on, and particularly policymakers and the, 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 the punditocracy, is that shifting from you know, oil and gas to uh, wind and solar and batteries is, is all things equal. Assume, it, assume for the sake of discussion, it costs the same, which it doesn't. It's much more expensive. But And assume for the sake of discussion that the environmental impacts are not comparable, but, but they're different, but they're comparable. Just assume they're comparable, but they're just different. That, to your point on the supply chain, what we've done is we switched from uh, an energy system that uses liquids and gases to an energy system that uses rocks and materials. <laughs> And one that we produce here, liquids and gases, to one that we have to import from elsewhere. The, the, the supply chain implications are sort of obvious. And then you, you could say, well, we, sh- we should just mine more of the stuff here. Uh, okay, that's, I, I vote for that, by the way. I think we should mine more in America. But there aren't many people who support that in the environmental community that I've, that I've noticed in, in recent decades or today. And more importantly, uh, the average time it takes globally – to open a new mine from you know, identifying an ore body to being in production is 16 years. That's the average for the world. In the United States, you can double that, by the way. It takes more than 16 years on average. But let's just take the 16 years. So we have people pledging to get off of oil and gas by the year 2035. So if tomorrow we start opening mines to have our own self-sufficiency in this, those mines will be, begin production. We can do the arithmetic here. <laughs> years after the point in time which we were supposed to have already made this transition. It, 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 you know, I, it's kind of embarrassing. People are saying profoundly silly things. It's not that we can't build more wind turbines and solar arrays and more electric cars. There's going to be lots more electric cars in the future. The real question is how many more, and will they, will they constitute some kind of magical transition in how the world does things? And the, the reality of the physics on the ground and the rocks on the, in the earth is that no, I mean, it's, whatever the transition is, it's going to be very long and slow, which is how global energy systems change, They're very slow and over long periods of time. And there are, uh, quote, hidden consequences. In fact, let me, let me add a financial one, since you're, it's a financial show. Let's, let's just talk about a simple fact that we're talking about commodity minerals, you know, copper, nickel. These are, these are things that are already commodities. They're not new discoveries. We just have to open new mines. And we also know that the major share of the cost of a battery in an electric car is now the cost of the material inputs, the minerals. Roughly 60 to 70 percent of the cost of making a um, battery is in the materials, the commodities, not the manufacturing, not the robots and people assembling, but the commodities. So here's here's an economics 101 question. At what point in all of recorded history have we seen a time where we increase the demand on a commodity by 300 to 3,000 percent, that the cost and the price of the commodity declines. When, when has that ever happened? Right. I mean, the answer is 
Never. Right. And we're now facing the biggest increase in demand for these commodities history has ever seen. And we're predicting that the cost of these products we're going to make from them are going to go way down. I, you know, I just don't think it passes the sniff test. Yeah, it sure doesn't. And um, and it's uh, again, I and I'm glad you pointed out a couple uh, of the outlets that are starting to talk about this. But I, it's almost like the horse is out of the barn. I mean, they come way too late, and all this money is being uh, spent and pledged. And uh, there, I don't know. I just don't see. Uh, the the end of the uh, football field they just keep pushing it out and moving that goalpost a whole lot further back but uh, we'll keep a close uh, eye on it Um, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us and to help us uh, better understand this very very important uh, environmental issue and um, again folks you can go to the uh, Manhattan Institute it's manhattan-institute.org uh, Mark Mills, M-I-L-L-S, and you can read uh, all of his uh, publications and his commentary and uh, interviews uh, where he was before uh, the uh, Congress and testifying there and become better educated yourself. Mark, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. It was really, really interesting. Uh, my, my pleasure to be on, and, and thanks thanks for inviting me. I hope people do uh read about these things because they're uh, they're important they're consequential yeah amen to that i i and you know I, hopefully we can circle back around with you uh later down the road and get an update because this is uh so interesting but also so important so thanks mark happy to do it thank you all right and uh unfortunately we're out of time uh wasn't that good stuff for one thousand pound battery five hundred thousand pounds of material and getting into the whole mine thing, I had no idea it took 16 years uh, to, you know, from cradle to grave to get the uh, mine up and running. But just unbelievable stuff. And, you know, if they're going to be digging all those big earth movers, they're all, you know, diesel. So what's that going to do to the environment? Because you're going to have to ramp up production at the mines and at more mines. It just doesn't make any sense. This is this is so backwards uh, the more you look into it, um, not even getting into the cost of you know, people that are poor or on fixed uh, income, they can't afford an electric car. This is just ridiculous. So I hope you enjoyed the program. Go again, excuse me, go to Manhattan-Institute.org, Mark Mills. He's a senior fellow there. You can hear how smart he is and funny and laid back, and that's the way he writes as well. Um, I mean, it's it's also, you know, very articulate. But anyway, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, the uh, takeaway at Murray Financial Group, Dot com is the value of an objective opinion. Uh, you can go there, click it's right on the homepage, get an instant uh, complimentary download to your uh, email. And um, we will talk with you during the Morning News Express with Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick. Weekday mornings, 550, 650, And then we'll see you back here next week. Uh, next week, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be talking with uh, the economist from the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council about intellectual property. Uh, I don't know if you heard or not, but they're just talking about uh, giving away all of the information for the vaccine to any country that wants it. That's intellectual property. <laughs> That's research and development that they're just going to invade these 
companies and, and give it away. Unheard of. But anyway, that's on the docket. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. I'm a simple man, ain't no other way to say it. I lay my cards on the table, only way I play it. I got some jaw in my yard, they can't imitate it. I'm tough and rowdy, reckless, rough around the edges. But ever since you came around, I've been thinking thoughts that I need to get out. So I, I grabbed a pen and a, a napkin, and I wrote this down. Yeah, my tractor's green, my pasture's greener, my tea's sweet, but on your sweeter, and my road is dirt. Past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. Radio 930. WFMD Frederick. A connoisseur media radio station. 7 o'clock.